You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome, children, to the Adventures in Finance Bedtime Story Hour. We have a very special treat for you tonight. Our reader for the evening is President Donald Trump. Tonight, we are reminded of our nation's path, and a new surge of optimism is placing impossible dreams firmly within our grasp. My economic team is developing historic tax reform that will reduce the tax rate on our companies. At the same time, we will provide massive tax relief for the middle class. We must create a level playing field for American companies and our workers. This effort will be guided by two core principles, buy American and hire American. I will be asking Congress to approve legislation that produces a $1 trillion investment in infrastructure of the United States, financed through both public and private capital, creating millions of new jobs. I am asking all citizens to join me in dreaming big for our country. Sleep tight, everyone, and sweet dreams. But sometimes when we go to sleep, instead of dreams, we have nightmares. We need to see the policy before we know. We have to understand if that's going to get through Congress. I think we just have to be realistic that this is likely to be a sluggish growth environment still. A recession's overdue. The average recession comes between seven and nine years. He can't repeal the economic cycle. Uh, it's a, we're very, very late. The key thing that. to remember for everybody is it won't happen in a day or a week or a month. If he wants to get this done, if he's, if he's politically motivated and he wants to get this done, a recession is a good thing. But it's, the point is that there can be some real negative So much bickering that all of the promise and hope and dreams now comes down to the reality of the political system. Dreams end up getting trimmed and trimmed and trimmed down to something that's barely possible. This week on Adventures in Finance, we deconstruct the dream that is the Trump reflation trade and explore why we think this narrative is about to enter the political house of horrors. David Hay of Evergreen Gavkal, Dr. Harold Malmgrim, economic advisor to four U.S. presidents, and Raoul Powell, author of Global Macro Investor and co-founder of Real Vision, guide us through Trump reflation and how narrative-driven markets could be the most dangerous beast of all. Also in this week's episode, we have our regular long and short feature in which Aaron and I discuss the good and the not-so-good stories of the week. I am long dataset innovation. Trump was actually targeting specific communities, specific nodes in, in the social media network with micro-targeted messages. I'm actually short hedge fund fees this week. And it was a story about some Asian hedge fund startups who are getting away from the traditional two and 20 and they're starting to charge investors no management fees. Finally, in a segment we call Things I Got Wrong, we speak with a market expert about something they got wrong and get them to share a pearl of investing wisdom with the benefit of 2020 hindsight. Yeah, this week, uh, one of the most humble investors you're ever likely to meet, um, he really is a, a dear friend of mine and a fantastic investor, David Hay, the CIO and partner of Evergreen Gavcal in Seattle. 
I guess the best advice I'd give to a long-term investor is you know, have a core position, but be willing to trade around that, you know, under those parameters. And we've been doing that more and more, but certainly in the past, I feel like that's been one of my bigger mistakes. I'm Grant Williams. I'm Aaron Chen, and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is March 30th, 2017, and welcome to episode nine of Adventures in Finance. And to my right is my trusty producer, James. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Why do you say trust trustworthy? Well, I say trusty because, well, I've been off the last couple of days. Um, my parents and my family, well, my family came to visit and I've been playing tour guide and also playing tourist on the island. And I came back on Tuesday and everything was uh, intact. So, so yeah, basically, pretty trustworthy by yeah, my book. The bosses let you out of the office to explore the wider world of the Cayman Islands then? Well, it was it was great. And and not to, you know, this isn't a, you know, a Cayman Islands tourism board PSA or advert, but there's actually a lot of fun things to do on the island. And it was fun to be a tourist for a little bit. And, you know, before my, uh, before going to the university, I, I did a lot of traveling for tennis and I, I never felt that, like I got to play the tourist. So it was kind of fun. Um, but you know, I actually would love to ask Grant, because he does a lot of traveling, whether he ever feels like a tourist wherever he goes. So Grant, where in the world are you? Uh, well, I am, I'm back in Singapore this week. Um, had I known that you were going to leave uh, the keys to the kingdom with James, I would have put a stop to that immediately. Thank God you've come back and the whole thing has been burned to the ground. But uh, yes, I'm back in Singapore. Um, but I will be headed your way shortly, guys. So uh, the next time we speak, I will be back on that side of the world. Something tells me, Grant, that I'm still going to ask you where you are just through force of habit. Yeah, but uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll be sitting next to you. I can just flick your ear then. That's going to be easy. <laughs> well, no, something tells me that Grant's probably not going to come directly here. He's probably got about 20 stops between Singapore and when he finally gets back to the Cayman Islands. You know what? I may have to change my opinion about you, James. You're absolutely right. Oh, great. That, that shows remarkable insight from you. Thank you. No, it's just, you know, I, I'm learning. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to our first segment, Long Short, where Grant and I go through the long, well, the good and not so good stories of the week. Grant, I went first last week, so I think it's your turn. All right. Well, this is, I got a great one this week. I am long uh, Ukrainian hackers uh, and their software adjustments for American farmers' tractors. Now, this is... Um, this is an astounding story. Uh, John Deere have put uh, locks on the tractors. Uh, you know, we were talking big farm equipment here um, that, that uh, they sell right across the heartland of America. And uh, if you want anything done, any servicing done, you have to call your local John Deere representative to come out and fix it for you. And obviously, by definition, a lot of these farms are out in the middle of nowhere. And so um, America's farmers have found that on uh, certain parts of the internet, you can subscribe to dummy websites where you can get Ukrainian hacked firmware patches for your John Deere uh, tractor, which allows you to hack into it and perform what are designated as unauthorized repairs on the farm equipment. Now, amazingly, when you when you buy these tractors, you have to sign uh, a piece of paper with John Deere, which uh, indemnifies the tractor manufacturer against, and I quote, crop loss, lost profits, loss of goodwill, loss of use of equipment arising from the performance or non-performance of any aspect of the software. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing that um, that through this software, you can control uh, how a farmer uses this tractor. And the, the farmers are afraid that John Deere can actually shut the tractors off remotely should they find uh, anything remotely. going wrong. So I... I yeah, so um, yeah, through the software, shut these things down. So, 
hey listen you, listen you and i this is way above our pay grade but uh for once i am long uh ukrainian hackers who are helping america's heartland farmers pull their crops in without uh, any interference from john deere hmm. well that can't be good for john deere's earnings because um and actually grant it reminds me a little bit of uh, the planned obsolescence, obsolescence that goes into Samsung phones. Um, now, I'm not saying, I'm not accusing of John Deere doing the same thing, but probably doesn't help the turnover of John Deere's inventory. Well, yeah, but I, I think Samsung have taken the planned obsolescence a little bit too far in making them self-combust. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, well, Grant, that's a really interesting story. My long for the week, um, it's definitely on the nerdier side, but I am long data set innovation. And I read a really interesting article. It was actually a blog post uh, written by this guy called Curtis Miller at NT Guardian. And it's about um, understanding data from a hierarchical perspective, uh, meaning, you know, there's data that's commonly available, there's data that's private, and then there is unexploited sort of greenfield data. And he explores this theme in, in terms of how Trump, the Trump campaign, utilized data in order to uh, craft sort of micro-target its messages according to psychographic profiles of voters in key swing states. Now, they contrast this with what Obama, the Obama campaign did in 2012 and the micro-targeting that they did, but theirs was sort of blunter in the sense that they just, you know, they were switching out celebrities with, you know, similar messages, but Trump was actually targeting specific communities, specific nodes in, in the social media network um, with micro-targeted messages. So I just thought that was, you know, it's an interesting way of thinking about data because, you know, a couple of weeks back we had a, you know, we had a fascinating interview or we visited an interview with uh, James Crawford talking about the use of satellite imagery data in order to figure out trends in, in oil and in trends in retail. Um, and, and I just thought, you know, it, it helps kind of frame our thinking in terms of uh, structured and unstructured data and, and what's possible. So, so Grant, this week I'm long data set innovation. Well, and I am absolutely certain that the three people still listening are fascinated by that, Aaron. Um, I, I almost pushed was, stop on that one. <laughs> you should be. But, yeah, no, the, the, I have to say that the Trump data stuff is, is actually it's fascinating. I've read some really interesting articles on that. So uh, uh, I, I hear you on that. I just didn't understand a word of what you just said. That's all. Luckily, I've, I've read it, and there were some nice pictures in the article I read. So, Well, on the short side, um, I, uh, I'm actually short hedge fund fees this week um i saw an interesting story actually that that featured once i got halfway through a, a, a dear friend of mine uh and it was a story about some asian hedge fund startups who are getting away from the traditional two and twenty um and they're starting to charge investors no management fees uh and actually taking performance fees and absorbing some of the losses and uh, a, a great friend of mine of many years a guy called mike downer um, who is working with another good friend of mine, Steve Diggle, and neither of them know I'm talking about this, and this is not definitely not a plug. But they started something uh, called Kit Trading, which basically is um, uh, a group that identifies and seeds a bunch of different strategies, and investors can invest in these. And there's a few of these around Asia. This is not just exclusive to, to Kit. Um, but these guys are seeing a lot of people pull back after some of the high fees and underperformance in the hedge fund industry. Um and so what these guys do, they, they absorb first loss. So it's it's going to change the entire uh, industry, I think. There are a lot of hedge fund traders that have good track records and are looking to kind of get out and maybe go out on their own and get out of the, 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 the uh, constraints put on them inside big funds. Um, and so a lot of these guys are setting up shop, uh, being seeded by uh, groups like Kit and uh, 
putting their own money in. Um, so they themselves lose the first part of any loss they make. And um, I think it's going to be very interesting to watch this develop with funds charging like a 1% um, fee and then spreading the profits with their with their traders. They build a great portfolio of different strategies. So it's going to be very interesting to watch this take. And it's going to put, I think, a lot of pressure on the traditional 2 and 20 model. So I am short uh, exorbitant hedge fund fees this week. Well, to the two listeners who are still listening to the um, to, to the podcast after that. Um, <laughs> hey, listen, I, that means I only lost one. <laughs> well, Grant, hopefully it does change the industry for the better. But let's move on to my short. This week, I am short billionaire bunkers, which is the fastest growing part of this disaster preparation sector. Uh, this was a story I read out of Zero Hedge, and it was an article on um, disaster shelters for the ultra wealthy. Now, I'm calling them shelters, but it's kind of, I think it's kind of disingenuous because... These things are decked out with all the luxury fixings you can think of. You know, swimming pools, cinemas, uh, fitness centers with all the latest weights and, and wine cellars. And, and apparently there was a surge of demand from both sides of the political spectrum leading up to and following the U.S. presidential election. Now, as great as all this might sound, I, I'm short these types of setups because, you know, instead of bunkering yourself in a place that isolates you from the rest of the world, you know, the outside world, you know, meanwhile, surrounding yourself with people who you don't know and, you know, you're not sure whether they have the same values, why not take the time and effort to actually build solid relationships and preparations with like-minded, self-sufficient people you can trust in times of ultimate crisis? So look, to each his or her own, but maybe it's just not how I would go about prepping, to, you know, I would go about prepping differently. So this week I am short billionaire bunkers. Well, you know, I, I'm listening to you and all I can think of is just imagine, James, you and I paying our money to get uh, the safety of being in a bunker and being stuck in one next to Aaron talking about some of the stuff that he talks about. I mean, it would, can you imagine? I mean, how, you'd, how, you'd, how thick are the doors on that? You'd be, you'd, be, you'd be using the lid of your canned food to slash your wrists. No, no, um, I have, I'll have all the peanut butter and honey, so I think you're going to want to make, uh, make good with me. All righty. Well, look, it's, uh, it's time to move on to our next section, which is our documentary feature. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute. That I will faithfully execute. The office of President of the United States. The office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability. And will, to the best of my ability. Preserve, protect, and defend. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations. Well, this week for our documentary feature, we are going to be talking about the reflation trade or the reflation narrative. Grant, if we take this back to, you know, before the election, the U.S. election, the American people were presented with an establishment candidate and a populist candidate. And right before the election, the market narrative was that Trump is negative for markets and Clinton was positive for markets. Would you say so? I would say so. And, and I think it's it's interesting what you said there, Aaron, when you, when you said the uh, reflation trade or the reflation narrative, because... That's what's essentially happening. A trade has been formed from a narrative. And as we know, narratives tend to change or be proven wrong. And I think uh, that may be where we are. So, 
And yeah, and even before the final results were in, you could see it in the market's reactions to the presidential debates one, two, and three. You could see it in the way that the dollar peso moved relative to Trump's comments on Mexico. You know, the ping-ponging between the FBI's investigations open and closing, opinion polls. So going into it, the mainstream media predicted a Clinton landslide. But Grant, as we know, the media and markets were in for a rude awakening. So I, so I was in Texas uh, that night um, with uh, a few other uh, market commentators. And I was interested that the general consensus was, um, as, you, as you alluded to, that, that Clinton was going to win. And Trump didn't have a chance, and I, I didn't think that. I, I actually thought Trump was uh, was a shoe in, as I've been writing for a while before. And I think the initial reaction was very, very interesting to see. I mean, the, the Dow Jones, the Spy futures just plummeted. The Dow was down a thousand points uh, in a matter of minutes as the as it became clear that Trump uh, had had this wasn't he hadn't been winning. He had a really good chance of winning. But within hours, the futures did a V-shaped bottom. They were down 5%. They went up 6.5%. And everybody everywhere was just scrambling, looking for some kind of narrative to to come out of this. And the market uh, has been in a, a real bull trend for a long time. And so it was clear it was looking for a positive narrative. And the one it seemed to have settled upon was the Trump reflation trade. And it kind of makes sense, right? Because... You look at some of the things he was talking about, tax reform, uh, be it at the corporate or individual level, and you look at infrastructure spending and economic nationalism or isolationism, uh, it kind of makes sense. You know, copper was up over 20, you know, 25 percent. Oil was up 28 percent until the recent sell off. So looking at these things, it kind of begs the question, are the good times back? And we will make America great again. God bless you and good night. I love you. Judging by equities and the indices that stand to benefit the most from the potential Trump policies, it would appear so. Uh, up until recently, the U.S. financial and aerospace and defense indices were up over 15%. The heavy construction index, I mean, that was up nearly 10%. And if you switch over to look at the yield on the benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasury bond, it, it tells a similar story. Yields rose over 122 basis points off of the July lows, to the point where the 30-year bond rally was brought into question, which I think speaks to the strength of this narrative. Yeah, you know, it, it does, Aaron. But you know, as I look at this, it's I, I find it a very easy narrative. I, I, I don't find there to be any nuance in it. it it's, it's, it's something that the market has constructed to justify higher prices, and it really does um, take as given uh, or it has taken as given all the positive things, tax breaks, infrastructure spending, etc., uh, etc., et and it's really kind of ignored any potential problems that Trump may have getting stuff through Congress, getting through uh, the House, which uh, obviously are both solidly Republican. And uh, I think that narrative has been flawed from day one. I think markets were looking for a reversal. They were looking for this uh, for this reason to just blow off a little bit more steam, uh, and they've had it. And I think reality uh, is just about starting to kick in. But Grant, when you do a roll call of economic indicators around the world, it kind of makes sense that this reflation narrative emerged. I mean, just look at the U.S. PMI index. It ripped higher to 57.5. You look at China PMI. I mean, that's rebounded since uh, fourth quarter of 2015. Well, on fiscal injections, particularly to the state-owned enterprises. Uh, But, you know, just looking at the Kaishin China general manufacturing PMI, that is in expansionary territory. Now, you move on to Europe, 
It may be lagging, but composite PMI there is approaching pre-sovereign debt crisis highs established in 2010 and 2011. Now, finally, moving on, just looking at it broadly for CPI across US, EU, and China, you know, the US and EU are picking up substantially, and China's turning lower, but on the aggregate, it does look like global reflation is back on. Well, look, it does uh, until you get uh, into the weeds a little bit and you start looking at base effects. I think this is the important thing people need to understand. And, and let's not forget, uh, we have to understand the uh, the year-on-year change from where oil was last year, oil being the biggest component of the CPI. Uh, you know, Raoul's spoken about this in uh, in his uh, Real Vision presentation recently. It's very important that that oil peaked about this time last year so we are going to see that start to fall off and that is going to really make it a struggle for inflation to continue to march higher from here and so if we return back to the narrative what is a narrative well it's essentially an account of connected events it's a story that people or even markets tell themselves in order to make sense of the world around them and at the heart of the reflation narrative lie trump's potential policies or as they call it trumponomics yeah, look, as with any story, uh, you have to break this down into its various component parts. And uh, my co-founder of Real Vision, Raoul Powell, the author of The Global Macro Investor, did just that to explain the main drivers of this narrative recently. And so the main elements of the Trump reflation story are tax cuts, which have yet to be passed and have yet to be approved. Um, but that's one element. So people think that tax cuts generally are stimulative to the economy. Now, it's not yet clear whether the tax cuts that Trump have are actually tax cuts overall or whether he has to rob one side to pay for the other. The other part is the infrastructure spend. Infrastructure spending is accretive to GDP growth because if the government spends money and builds roads and bridges and internet infrastructure and all the other things, that employs people and that has a, a supposed money multiplier. The third main part of the Trump reflation policy that's out there and the market have been holding on to is kind of the, let's call it, made in America policy. That is the trade isolationist idea where American companies produce American goods in America. Now, the idea behind that simplistically is if American companies are making cars or other manufacturing goods in the US, then obviously they have to invest in the US to build factories and they need to employ American workers, which means American wages go up and that is good for the economy because people can spend more and it creates jobs at home as opposed to sending money abroad. But what it does mean for companies is their costs go up. Do they pass those costs on to people, which is the inflation part of the reflation trade? It would be inflationary, essentially, to do this because it drives up wages at home and the costs for American companies because, let's face it, it's cheaper to produce T-shirts in Ethiopia than it is in the US. Regardless of what my view on this is, it's all down to whether these things can generate the animal spirits that drive the US economy. Those are the things where it meant it means that people want to invest more money. They want to take risk. They want to not save money or buy back their shares. They want to invest in infrastructure. They want to invest in new factories. Now, we haven't seen that animal spirits for the last 20 years. They've been dwindling over time as fixed asset investment has been falling and falling and falling, and companies have instead bought back their shares. So, you know, there's a lot to play for here. And so, Grant, when I listen to what Raul is saying here, you know, I've never, I've never read a good story that didn't have a little bit of suspense or, or mystery about what the outcomes were. And, and you can, I think you can apply this to markets, right? Because 
financial markets, they don't price in actualities, but they price in anticipation. Um, and that's essentially what we're dealing with here. Yeah, it is. But I think the important thing to understand here, and what's, I think, changed since uh, since 2008, or, or rather since, since 2009, is that the market is looking for any positive angle. You're right. It used to discount things. But it used to be far more concerned with the potential pitfalls. Right now, this, this central bank put has caused markets to, to really look for the positive narrative, assuming that the negative narrative will be taken care of by, uh, by central banks. And it's really dangerous. You know, this, is, this is the absolute crux of moral hazard. And we're seeing that right now in, in America with the response to the potential Trumpflation trade. So what's happened now is the bone-crushing misery of American politics that takes so long to get things passed, so much bickering, that all of the promise and hope and dreams now comes down to the reality of the political system. And that takes time. And again, dreams end up getting trimmed and trimmed and trimmed down to something that's barely passable. So that's the, that, that's the game we now have to play. We've gone from the hope trade, and now it's the reality trade, and then we'll get to the outcome trade. <laughs> well, bone-crushing sounds pretty apt, Grant, but I can think of a couple more ways to describe the U.S. political system. You know, one of them being opaque. I can think of wasteful. And my new favorite, swampy. Yeah, it, it's interesting because what we've seen, uh, the hope side of this is that, okay, Trump's got the White House. The Republicans have the House and the Senate. This is going to be a nice, easy cable for him. We're not going to have any of the divisive uh, fighting that we saw between the Obama Democrats and the who-knows-who Republicans for the last eight years. You know, there was a real division there. Uh, and the polarization just got broader and broader as we went through those eight years. Instead, what we're seeing is that there are now divides within the Republican Party. And so what people thought was going to be nice and straightforward is now running up against the the deficit hawks. Uh, it's running up against uh, those looking to put a pin in the repeal and replace Obamacare. So we're, we're back to the fighting, except this time it's infighting. And, um, you know, there's nobody that we've spoken to in Real Vision that understands this part of American politics better than uh, Dr. Harold Malmgren. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Malmgren is just a wealth of experience, having been the senior advisor to four U.S. presidents, including Presidents Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford. A new president comes in power, um, uh, or comes into the office, let's call it that. And the first thing that's going to happen is he's going to say, well, I, I, here's my agenda. Here's my State of the Union. I'm going to, I want these things done. And traditionally, there would be a honeymoon period. But with this, after this election, there won't be any honeymoon. <laughs> there will be, you know, the battle's already begun between Trump and Ryan. Uh, and Trump doesn't understand that you, you can't function without the Speaker's help. So if you make an enemy of him, he'll just sit and wait for you, and the first thing you want, he'll just cut it off, and then you know, he'll keep doing that until you say you come up submissively and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. <laughs> it's, it's just the way it works, because the president doesn't control a vast number of votes. It's the machinery in Congress that, that does that job. So, uh, so there'll be an impasse. But within Congress, usually in the early period of a president, the two parties will informally agree some things should be done. But these parties are now not only in serious conflict with one another, but internally they're divided. Yeah. So we're, we're going to have a period of chaos and uh, gridlock. I mean, that's what we call it, but I, it's not just gridlock. So I think the early months, you're going to get a lot of talk 
and a lot of maneuvering for power. Who's, who's you know, chief of the barnyard? And which animal is, has, uh, you know, the rights over all others? Uh, that's going to be a, a, a pretty serious quarrel. And, and the president won't, can't control that. It's not in his hands. Um, now, he can start writing executive orders, and, and, um, and then all of that goes to the Supreme Court or appellate courts. But the courts, as they stand now, they're going to overturn a lot of that stuff. Uh, you know, this Consumer Financial Protection Bureau just got uh, beaten down by the appellate court. Um, so, and the courts will begin to play a role. Uh, it, but I'm, what I'm projecting is a very slow motion uh, response to the economy's troubles. Yeah, this is this is extraordinary. Now, anybody listening to this that didn't actually see that interview uh, in full would struggle to believe me if I told them that uh, Dr. Malmgren was actually talking there back in October of 2016. I mean, it's extraordinary. Here's a man that understands that world um, intimately and, and has had a tremendous amount of experience there. And, and what he said was going to happen is exactly what happened, you know, down to the travel bans that were getting overturned by, by the judges, the arguments, the leaking, the, 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 the fights between Trump and Right. I mean, it's truly extraordinary what he said several months before this has all happened. So for a long period of, of rethinking, uh, a Congress that is not going to work well for a while much less well, no honeymoon. Uh, and the president will find, whoever it is, that it takes six to nine months to assemble the 4,000 political appointees needed because you not only have to have them all vetted, if they have any money, they have to divest all that. And then you've got security clearances, which is a monumental task and isn't is handled sloppily sometimes. And then you get bitten back by it. It's a it's a mechanical process. It's like you know supply chains. Is how long to get from here to the assembly of that automobile line? We got all these parts that I got to bring together. I always think of it like supply chains management. Uh, and then when you start taking initiatives, every new president has some initiative he wants to try out, and then they fall flat. It's the second year of a president in a well-organized Congress that where the action starts. That's a long time. But the key thing to remember for everybody is it won't happen in a day or a week or a month. It's going to be a, a process that will be painfully slow until the, until the recession becomes pain, too painful to bear. And then there will be action. And then finally, and then there will be a meeting of uh, uh, ideologies into, you know, a conversion into, well, you know, how do I survive this? Uh, uh, so, but the markets are, are looking for a moment, an inflection point, something, you know, that uh, it, it, everything will change on January. No. You know, Grant, going back to this interview, I remember when I was watching it and just observing uh, Dr. Malmgren's facial expressions and also his, his body language. I mean, you can feel the, the impasse. You can feel the sluggishness and just the the, the, the friction of that political system. And, and it was just manifesting itself in, in how he was talking about it. it was, I, thought, I thought that was really interesting. It is. It's, it's fascinating. You know, when, when you do get the chance to listen to someone who's been so deep in something like this, uh, as Dr. Malgren has, you really understand that the actors change and the names and the faces change, but the system, you know, this swamp that, uh, that Donald Trump has promised to drain, um, 
it's just overwhelmingly powerful and it's so ingrained the behaviors are so ingrained um, that really the changing of the actors just doesn't really change the play and the markets uh, I suspect are going to wake up to this and again we, you know, we come back to that thing we were talking about earlier Aaron this moral hazard, this believing that the downside is all taken care of so let's just focus on the positives um, I think markets are in for a nasty shock. And so I think it's probably probably useful to summarize where we are right now you know we talk, we, we're talking about the Trumponomics we're talking about the reflation and this consists of three things, tax reform, infrastructure spending, and isolationist trade policies. Now, as Rob was saying, there are no details, there's no congressional will, and there's no collaboration. And, and just from hearing from Dr. Malmgram, I mean, we're basically facing the worst inter- and intra-party gridlock that we've seen in decades. Yeah, this is something that happens all the time. The markets, they look back in history for some kind of parallel, some kind of narrative. And the one that we seem to have alighted on very quickly after the election result was that of Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. And going back to my my friend David Hay of Evergreen Gavcal, uh, he saw the same things that I did. So let's just go back and think about what the early years of Reagan brought. Those first two years of his term... Basically, you had a severe recession, one of the worst, actually it was the worst up to that time since the Great Depression. You had a nasty bear market, and he got shot. You know, it was, all, it was kind of a tough first couple of years in office. And I actually think that all those things could happen again, and you know, hopefully nobody takes a shot at, at Trump. But let's face it, he's a very polarizing figure. A lot of people don't like him. I hope he's got great security. But it's, the point is that there could be some real negative surprises coming uh, in the, the months ahead. If it is, Reaganomics 2.0, but also consider what Reagan inherited. Very high inflation, for sure, which in, in, in consumer prices, not asset prices. So what, what Trump has got is very subdued consumer price inflation, but very high asset price inflation. And as he has said repeatedly, it's a big, fat, ugly bubble out there. And as soon as interest rates go up, there's going to be trouble. Well, guess what? Interest rates are going up. And I think that's another thing that could be a bit of an echo of uh, Reagan, because what happened in Reagan's first year in office, 1981, was that Volcker, trying to beat consumer inflation, raised interest rates repeatedly and to a level that you know, broke the back of inflation, which was great. You know, that worked for years and years thereafter. But those first couple of years were brutal. And these first couple of years could be brutal because we do have this asset inflation that has been caused by interest rates being far too low. Yeah, you know, it, David's absolutely right. When you look at where Reagan started, you know, some of the, the metrics that, that Ronald Reagan inherited, he inherited a CPI that was just shy of 15%. Uh, he inherited a 10-year that was yielding just shy of 11%. And the S&P was trading on about seven times earnings. The, the federal debt in the U.S. was less than a trillion. It was about $800 billion. And the debt to GDP was, I think, 30 31%. Now, you contrast that with, with uh, Trump. He's got a CPI of 1.6, a 10-year yielding less than 2%. The S&P, when he took over, was at 20 and a half, 21 times earnings. And he had a federal uh, debt closing in on $20 trillion. And a debt to GDP that's tripled to you know, over 100%. This is not a point at which a kind of Reagan rally is going to start. And, and it's worth pointing out that in the first 18 months of uh, Reagan's uh, term, the S&P lost about 27%. So, uh, you know, this, this, this Trump-Reagan parallel, I just don't get it. I really don't. Well, and Grant, I think another 
important point here is that this is the financialization of the economy. You know, now the market is the economy. And so with a rising interest rate environment, that actually increases the probability of a recession coming on. And, and when you look at the business cycle, Trump could actually be tested way sooner than later. I think we just have to be realistic that this is likely to be a sluggish growth environment still with maybe a bit of an improvement. But the other part of it is that he can't repeal the economic cycle. Uh, it's a, we're very, very late in that. And we're seeing all kinds of evidence of things that, uh, whether it's rents starting to fall in a number of major cities, including incredibly around here in the Seattle area where the economy has been so strong. We're seeing the auto market look very long in the tooth. Yes, sales are certainly very strong, but it's with huge incentives and very, very funky financing. I think that the subprime auto uh, lending could be this, the equivalent of what the subprime mortgage uh, debacle was 10 years ago. So there's just there's a plethora of indications that we're very late in this game. And, and that was different with Reagan. Reagan came in after a recession when, when Carter was president. He got another recession because we talked about with Volcker uh, cranking rates up. But as soon as those interest rates started coming down, I mean, you had a tremendous coiled spring effect. And he also had a market when he came in that was trading at nine times earnings, single-digit P.E., Instead, you've got Trump in there with what we think is the most expensive market of all time. Well, you know, listening to David, listening to Raoul, um, uh, and I've lo- alluded to it a couple of times also in what I've said in between them, um, there is an 800-pound gorilla in this room, and that is the Federal Reserve. And not just the Fed, but, uh, but all the central banks around the world. We've come to this part of the story where our brave narrative encounters the, the quintessential boss fight along the quest. And... It's important to bring up the Fed because they do have an outsized influence on what happens to Trump during his first term. You know, Yellen has got to believe that she's a lame duck Fed chairman. She's got a year. And I, I, you know, I don't think she's got any great love for Donald Trump. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if she, you know, raises rates more than expected, you know, creates some turmoil. But I, I do believe the Fed feels like they need to have rates high enough that during the next crisis they can cut them and have an impact. And so if there's kind of this resurgence of animal spirits because of Trumphoria, and she's got a window that she can jack rates up to what was kind of a quasi-normal level, and I would postulate that's around two. I don't think we're getting back to four, you know, or, or you know, no way 5% on the Fed funds rate. I think two is probably the new four. And, as, and, and people ask, well, why would you buy any bonds if you think the Fed's going to be raising rates? And if you look historically, particularly in the last major Fed tightening cycle, the damage to the bond market was done before the Fed ever raised. And he, typically, it's, it's the first few hikes that where you really see bonds get hit. And then as they tighten and tighten and tighten, bonds actually start to rally and bring their yields down. And that's how you get the flat and inverted yield curve. And I actually didn't think we would get that this time, but I think we might. I think we could see a very flat inverted yield curve around 2%. Which is exactly what we're getting now as, as we speak, this flattening of the, of the yield curve and on its way to being inverted. Now, maybe it makes sense to stop right here to explain to people who are unfamiliar what a flattening yield curve or an inverted yield curve means or signifies. Um, this is a situation or a scenario where near-term rates are greater than or equal to long-term rates. And this is typically viewed as a harbinger of an economic downturn and, and could hasten recession. And a way to illustrate this is actually to think of it from a bank's perspective. Um, a bank typically borrows at short-term. A bank borrows at short-term rates and lends at long-term rates. But when you have a flat or inverted yield curve, a bank would be borrowing at higher short-term rates and lending at lower long-term rates, which just doesn't make sense, right? Because ultimately, that something like that is negative for credit growth in an economic system that is 
unfortunately sustained on credit expansion. Yeah, and it's interesting you know, that we're already seeing that come through in the data. I mean, if you look at the lending data, uh, it started to fall precipitously. And uh, I've, I've read several uh, bits of uh, very smart commentary on this in the past few days alone. So, you know, David saw this happening. I think he's absolutely right about the Fed uh, being desperate to have some room to cut. And I think if you told Janet Yellen she could get to 2% without upsetting the apple cart, she would bite your arm off. Um, I personally don't think they'll get to 2%. I think if the market's think that's where they're headed, then um, they will jump ahead of that and, uh, and and probably bring the Fed back to easing faster than uh, people think. And so this tightening of financial conditions actually ties into a major unintended consequence of two of Trump's potential policies, and that's the US dollar and the kind of havoc a strengthening dollar could inflict upon the policies Trump is hoping to implement. Yeah, there's been a lot of focus on the tax reform, um, and also there's two trillion dollars in repatriated corporate profits sitting overseas. Uh, which, if it does come home, and I, and I do have some doubts that it would all come back to the United States, but let's posit that it does, that would mean uh, far fewer dollars, physical dollars, in the system. And perhaps most crucially, uh, the U.S. renegotiating trade agreements uh, and this kind of move towards isolationism and economic nationalism, um, initially by Trump, but but one would have to think, should he go through with it, then by other parts of the world. That has a very pernicious side effect for the rest of the world, as uh, as Raoul explained. If America runs no trade deficit, because they've basically shut their borders to trade or have offset it via taxes, then it means the rest of the world, who used to buy goods and sell goods to America, particularly sell goods to America, they used to receive dollars. Now, suddenly, they're not getting dollars because America generally is not buying goods from them because it's buying goods from home. Now, that's all well and good in the balanced system, but the fact is that the rest of the world is short $10 trillion. So they need dollars to service those debts and also for the functioning of their economy. So if you take those dollars away, then it becomes a mad scramble for dollars. If America doesn't do anything about it, because as a reserve currency, you need to run a deficit because other people need your currency... If you don't do that, you will eventually, and the word is eventually in, in inverted commas, lose your reserves currency status because everybody else is forced to use something else. Now, that was one of the reasons behind the Plaza Accord, where the dollar was just getting too strong. So they knew it was becoming impossible for people to find enough dollars. I think that outcome is potentially out there again, but it will develop over the next two or three years. I know the dollar's correcting somewhat now. Um, I still think it goes much higher because I don't see anything that the U.S. is doing that is going to weaken the dollar. So, Grant, maybe this was before the time of some of our listeners. Can you explain what the Plaza Accord is? Yeah, look, in very, in, in very simple terms, uh, the last time we saw, um, or back in the 80s, sorry, the, the, the time before last, we saw a really strong dollar bull market like this. Uh, eventually, it became too much uh, for the central bankers of the world to bear. They all got together at the Plaza Hotel, which I think at that point in time was actually owned by one Donald J. Trump, um, and they agreed to basically put a cap on the dollar. And this was a concerted central bank effort uh, to weaken the dollar. And it worked. If you look at the chart, you'll see um, the, the the tremendous run-up and then the total collapse of the dollar once all the central banks got behind it. And this is something, you know, Raoul and I go backwards and forwards about, and um, he's been absolutely spot on with this strong dollar thesis for the last uh, you know, 18 months, two years. Uh, and I've been with him all the way. And, and I find myself diverging with him uh, at the moment, um, because I think, to his point here, I think 
Plaza Accord 2.0 will happen, but I think it will it will necessarily have to happen far sooner in that rally than it did last time. So you know, I'm not as convinced that the dollar runs as strongly as Real does. Um, but I absolutely respect not just his opinion, but a lot of the other re- super smart guys that, that do believe there's another major leg up in this bull market. Uh, I just think that the side effects this time would be even more dangerous than we saw in the 80s. And so uh, any Plaza Accord 2.0 would happen uh, far, far sooner in the, in, in the uh, narrative than it did back in the 1980s. Yeah, Grant, I tend to agree with you on that, because if you look at the trade weighted dollar chart and... You know, take it back to 1971 at the end of the Bretton Woods system. It appears that ever smaller dollar rallies are sufficient uh, to induce some kind of global shock. And I think this is the the grand irony of it all: is that despite the best of intentions, you know, putting into place potential tax and isolationist policies would actually create a global shock that threatens to drag the U.S. down with it. All the while, rates are just still too close to zero to provide any cushion in that sort of event. I think it's misplaced optimism. Um, He'll get through some things, and some things he won't get through, and we have no idea of the course of the economy over it. Um, As I said, I think that he can pass pretty much anything in a recession, but without a recession, he won't get through most things. Um, You know, we saw how TARP managed to get through. I mean, crazy bull gets through in a recession. So I think if he wants to get this done, if if he's politically motivated and he wants to get this done, a recession is a good thing. Yeah, this is uh, this is interesting to me um, because I think Raoul's absolutely right. My fear is that uh, to to call on a recession now for political purposes, thinking of this, if we want to get things done, let's just let a recession happen. Uh, I don't think this is going to be any common or garden recession, and I think uh, this is a genie you do not want to let out of the bottle because it could get out of control in a hurry, and you don't have the ammunition to fight it that you've had in previous recessions. You know, with interest rates at at one percent, uh, if you do get a recession, which uh, I, I suspect will be a doozy, you just have no bullets. So I just think that would be not just dangerous but utterly reckless to do that. Um, that's not to say it won't happen though. All right, so coming up next is our Things I Got Wrong segment, where we speak with a market expert about an investing hiccup or mistake they made, and we ask them to share lessons that they learned so that our listeners can benefit from that experience and apply it to their own investing. Yeah, this week, uh, I'm just thrilled to have David Hay on on, on the program. David's a, a dear friend of mine, and uh, uh, I've looked up to David for a long, long time. He's, he's a tremendous investor um, and an even better man, and I, and I can't say anything better about anyone than that. And uh, I think you'll really enjoy listening to David talk about uh, one of the mistakes he's made. So I'm joined this week by David Hay, who is the Principal and Chief Investment Officer of Evergreen GovCal, as well as the author of the must-read Evergreen Virtual Advisor Market Commentary blog. So David, thanks for taking the time. Oh, you're welcome, man. Thanks for inviting me to be part of this. Great. So to kick things off, as we usually do in this segment, can you talk about a time in your investing career where you made a mistake or faced an investing challenge? Well, as you and I talked about before this uh, interview, that will be a very long list since I've been doing this for almost 40 years. But you know, I tend to think, like most human beings, about mistakes made more recently. Those are always the most vivid in my memory bank. And as you and I have discussed in the past, uh, the very recent past, the, the underestimation of what the central banks have been able to do with their you know, basically unlimited printing presses was a mistake. 
you know, we did think that there would be kind of a look through at the lack of sustainability of that kind of a bull market catalyst. And that was certainly a mistake. There really has been no fears, at least in a very long time, about exit strategy. You know, what happens when that stops or reverses? And, you know, I think somebody could say, well, look, the Fed stopped QE, you know, a couple of years ago and the markets kept going. But what that ignores, of course, is that the ECB and the Bank of Japan and the uh, Swiss National Bank, there's been a lot of QEs ramping up in recent years, and that money tends to go to America in many cases, into U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds. And the other thing I think that uh, I underestimated is corporations willing to buy back half a trillion dollars a year or more of their increasingly overpriced stocks and leveraging up to do it. And again, you would think the corporations would have learned their lesson because they did that in spades back in 06, 07, and that ended horribly. So, you know, again, just underestimating either whether it's the gullibility of investors or the power of central banks to force them to do things that in their heart of hearts they know uh, really are ill-advised. Uh, you know, Dave, I don't know if I'd give them that much credit insofar as realizing that all this money changing is ill-advised, but you know, the $4 trillion question is, where do we currently stand with central bank confidence? Well, it's a great question because, you know, the old saying is don't fight the Fed. And you could say that events of recent years have validated that. But on the other hand, if you look back to 2000, 2002, 2007, 2000, early 2009, the Fed was cutting interest rates like crazy, and yet the market was getting absolutely annihilated. So it's, you know, the, the don't fight the Fed works sometimes, doesn't work other times. And you know, maybe the best way to do it is to look at what investor risk appetites are like, like and, and try to sync the two. In other words, when investors are in an acute risk-off mode, uh, there's, the Fed's not going to really be able to staunch that with uh, aggressive cutting. I don't know about that, but one of the other mistakes that I've made here lately, uh, until very lately, is not paying enough attention to extreme sentiment readings. So, in other words, if you were to go back to the summer of 2015, the market had been quite complacent and very bullish. And then all of a sudden, the remedy fell sharply and oil prices continued to crash. And you know, people went from, investors in general, went from extremely optimistic to very bearish. And the market did pull back about 15% and sentiment readings got super, super bearish. And so I think a mistake that, that investors like us who tend to be very long-term focused make is you ignore those kinds of opportunities to, in this case, say, cover some of your shorts or hedges. And that's, you know, that's a really a good lesson learned is that uh, you, know, you really do need to, whatever your long-term viewpoint is or positioning is, you should probably adjust that to when you get these, not minor swings, but, you know, just really off the chart readings, either of bullishness or bearishness. So, and I think another, I know a lot of your, your folks that read your letters or, or subscribe to your service are very bullish gold long-term and, and we are too, but there have been times here recently, like last summer where just, it seemed like everybody was bullish and of course prices had moved extremely rapidly and it was a good time to be, you know, taking profits in gold and, so really, we guess what I'm saying is that I, I think a, an investor who, and maybe there's not a, that many of us left that think long-term, maybe we're like dodo birds, but 
there are some out there that have this, you know, I'm just going to hold gold till fiat currencies become totally discredited. But, you know, if that's, that's a very, could be a very long wait and you miss tremendous opportunities to take profits and then buy back during weakness. And so I think, you know, if you're, I guess the best advice I'd give to a long-term investor is you know, have a core position, but be willing to trade around that, you know, under those parameters. And we've been doing that more and more, but certainly in the past, I feel like that's been one of my bigger mistakes. Yeah, you know, your point about reconciling a long-term view, you know, be it on the demise of fiat currency with a, you know, let's call it a short-term nimbleness and sensitivity to sentiment readings, it rings true in principle, but how does that apply on a practical basis and especially in current market conditions? Well, I think a good example is small cap. So we have been for years extremely bearish on small cap and realistically small caps have been underperforming for the most part, but they've had some ferocious rallies. So summer of actually it was early 2016, uh, small caps were down 27% from peak to trough. They still looked very expensive on a valuation basis, but that's a pretty big decline. And you also had, uh, once again, a, just, uh, it seemed like the entire world was bearish on small caps, which should have meant that we were closing out. And we did close out some of our hedges, but we really should have closed out almost all of them when you see that. And then be in a position where you can come back in much harder during the inevitable rally. So that's, I just think we're doing that more and more at Evergreen. And I think that's probably a better way than just, you know, waiting for the, the epic collapse, you know, a 60, 70% derating of small caps, which I think ultimately is coming. Those are the kind of things that I think is a, as a more opportunistic investor are like your golden chance to make money with not much risk. And it's, you know, small caps have not exactly been crushed because we've had a very uh, a buoyant market, but they certainly have underperformed since uh, early December. You know, they had that big run after the election and since then they've been correcting to going sideways. So I, I think that's you know a tactic that we're using at our firm more and more. And I, I just think when you've got the investment community, particularly the speculative investment community, who doesn't have a very good track record, when they're absolutely convinced something's going to happen, either bullish or bearish, you almost always want to be on the other side of that, at least near term. Yeah, holding that long-term view, but um, also trading tactically sounds like an elusive uh, sweet spot, I guess. And, and hopefully our listeners can build up the self-awareness uh, to get to that point. Well, unfortunately, Dave, this is all the time we have. But before we sign off, can you can you tell our listeners where they can find your work or get in touch with you? Uh, you can follow us at our website, uh, which is evergreengovcal.com. Or maybe the easiest thing to do is just to, uh, if they want to get our weekly letter, which is free, Evergreen Virtual Advisor, they could just email me at D Hay, D H A Y, nice short last name, D Hay at Evergreen Capital or Gavcal, either way. And by the way, Gavcal is spelled G A V E K A L dot net. Well, that's all the time we have for today, but David, thank you for your time. You're welcome, Aaron. You know, Grant, David, it was such a, a pleasure to speak with. And, you know, I feel like there's a recurring theme here. Well, f- first of all, underestimating the Fed firepower and investor credulity. Uh, I think not only David, but I think a couple of weeks back we had Bill Fleckenstein come on and say something similar. Now, just hearing that, may, you know, is it possible that we just might be at peak Fed firepower or peak Fed confidence? I'm astounded. I, I too underestimated how long 
this would go on for. There are, there are plenty of little signs that maybe that confidence is starting to wane around the edges. Um, and, you know, I, I, I kind of want to get there just because I think we need to get that out of the way. We, we, it may be that we're not there yet, but, uh, you know, what's, what's that, old, that quote? It may not be the end of the world, but you can see it from here. Uh, and I think that goes for uh, the end of central bank credibility. So I, I'm, I'm paying careful attention to that uh, because I think we're getting close. And I think when we get there, it's going to be a very, very important turning point. And Grant, another interesting uh, comment or lesson that uh, David talked about was sort of paying attention to extreme sentiment readings. Now, I just just personally, I have more of a long-term bias or long-term orientation when I look at, when I think about investing or look at trades. But, you know, factoring that extreme sentiment reading, I mean, we, we were, I think last week we were talking about the extreme sentiment or the extreme positioning in oil futures. Now, how do you work in that nearer-term sentiment reading with a longer term? I mean, how do you how do you see those two things combining together to form like a larger understanding or a larger thesis? Well, look, sentiment readings are, are strange things. I'm always very, very wary of them. Um, and they, 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 to me, they tend to mark great turning points. Every time sentiment's high, to me, that's a time to be on red alert. And when people are just black bearish, uh, it's a time when you need to be looking for, for an uptick. So I, I use them as contraindicators rather than anything else. But, but I think... Um, I think you do have to pay attention when they get to extremes. It really is a warning that things are about to change. Uh, and so uh, I, I, I pay great attention to when these things get to, get to extreme readings. All right. Well, that concludes uh, another episode nine, Aaron. We've, we've, we're, we're in double figures if we make it to next week. Um, Nearly. Yeah, nearly. Now, just a quick legal plug before we end. Uh, anything you heard on this episode really should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. Everybody listening, you really need to do your own fundamental research, chart your technicals if that's what you if that's what you like to do, place your stops and trade responsibly. Absolutely right, Grant. Well, coming up next week, we have our commentary segment where we feature Carson Block, the famed short seller and founder of Muddy Waters Research. Now, short selling is a personal favorite topic of mine, and it's but it's also incredibly hard to master, or so I've been told. So given these frothy markets, I thought no better time to hear from someone like Carson. Yeah, you're going to love this. Uh, Carson has some just astounding stories about researching and shorting uh, fraudulent Chinese companies. So, uh, so do tune in next week and listen to that. If you've got an interesting question about this week's show, we'd love to hear it. Send us an email or voice note at podcast at realvision.com. And if you enjoyed what you heard this week, then please do subscribe on iTunes. And if you can find a couple of minutes to uh, to review us, that really would uh, help us move up the charts. Yep, the reviews really help. And to keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. And you will also find us on uh, Facebook and LinkedIn if you just search for Real Vision. You can follow me on Twitter at at TTMYGH. And you can follow me at Macrodidact. And that's it from us. We will see you here same time next week. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.